As we approach our study of the inerrant Word of God, we're going to look at one of the most interesting events in the life and ministry of our Lord. Not only was this one of the most interesting events in the life and ministry of our Lord, it is also, I'm convinced, one of the most misunderstood. The text is John chapter 8, so please turn there with me as we prepare to study and meditate and learn together. John chapter 8. Our text for the morning will actually be verse 53 of chapter 7 through verse 11 of chapter 8. So please follow along with me as I read that text. John chapter 7 verse 53 and then on through chapter 8 verse 11. We read, And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This passage is a very unique and unusual passage of Scripture. For one thing, it is unusual because this particular section of Scripture, 753 through 811, is not found in many of the 5,000 plus Greek manuscripts we have of the New Testament today. You probably, if you use a study Bible of some kind, have some kind of footnote or some kind of marginal note indicating that this is the case. This is one of only two such extended passages found in the entire Bible, the other one being Mark 16, 9 through 20. The issue surrounding this story of the woman taken in adultery is not whether or not the story is true. I've never read a scholar who doubted the truthfulness of this incident. The issue that is debated and discussed and studied is whether or not this was originally a part of John's gospel. You see, because it does not appear in most of the early manuscripts we have today, many do not believe that John originally included this as a part of his gospel. In fact, you might find it interesting to know that one set of Greek manuscripts 
places this story in Luke's Gospel, chapter 21. Some of the Greek manuscripts place the story at the end of John's Gospel, sort of as a footnote to his life and ministry. Again, let me emphasize that the issue at stake here is not the truthfulness of this story, but rather the origin and placing of the incident in John's Gospel. Now, some of you might be saying to yourself, well, how did it get mixed up like this? What's the issue? What's going on here? The answer to that question is as follows. When the New Testament was originally written in Koine Greek, it was written by men who were guided by the Holy Spirit of God. The New Testament was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the original manuscripts, the original documents, were inspired by God. And the early Christians were sharp enough to recognize that. It was evident that these letters, these books, were not just like any ordinary writings of the day. It was obvious that they were unique pieces of literature, inspired Scripture. Just like the books they already had in inspired Scripture, the 39 books of the Old Testament. So, because the Christians of the first century recognized that these letters, whether we're talking about Paul's or Peter's or Jude or James or whatever, these letters and these books, like the gospel accounts, because the Christians recognized them as inspired Scripture, they copied these manuscripts over and over and over again. The goal was to get the word out. This was different than what happened during the Old Testament time when only professional copyists were allowed to copy, only professional scribes. Not so with the New Testament documents. They were copied by every Tom, Dick, or Harry who had a copy of them. Or maybe we should say every Lazarus, Thomas, and Petros, or whatever, who had a copy. So these manuscripts were copied by anyone and everyone. And as the original documents were copied, every now and then a scribe or a copyist would insert a comment or a story in the text. This was often done, in fact usually done, in the margins. So when you look at some Greek manuscripts, most of the time it's obvious when someone has put a comment because it's off to the side in the margin or somewhere like that. Now understand, this was not done to change the Word of God. This was done by the people who were copying the manuscripts to help people understand Scripture, just like footnotes and study notes that are in study Bibles today. So many feel that's why this story does not appear in every copy of John's Gospel in in all of the Greek manuscripts that we have today. Or, to turn it around the other way, some say that this story was left out of John's Gospel by some scribes or a scribe or copyist who didn't want to include it for one reason or another. So there are strong arguments on both sides of the fence as to whether or not this story belongs here at this point in John's Gospel. Those who say that it does point out the fact that this fits the pattern of John's gospel up until this point. Let me explain. In chapter 5, there was an incident that led Jesus into a sermon. In chapter 6, there was an incident that led Jesus into a sermon. In chapter 7, there was an incident that led Jesus into a sermon. So some say the pattern continues here in chapter 8. The incident of the woman caught in adultery leads into Jesus' sermon about light, 
darkness, and truth in chapter 8. That is the view of those who, who hold the position that this story does belong at this point in John's gospel. Now, this issue is really beyond the scope of our study this morning. In 40 to 45 minutes, we will never be able to explain or unlock all the details of conservative textual criticism, and I want to underline the word conservative in that statement. We're not talking about liberal scholars who try to deny the Bible and try to discredit the Bible. We're talking about conservative textual criticism, conservative study of the texts of Scripture or the manuscripts of Scripture. The fact is that in our English translations, the story appears here in John's Gospel. So let's move away from the issue of the placing of the story to the point or the purpose of the story, because this story is a very well-known incident in the life and ministry of Jesus. In fact, many people who, who don't really know the Bible well at all, who are not Christians, who would not claim to be followers of Jesus, many people in those categories know this story. And that leads to my next statement. Just as this is a commonly known story, it is also a commonly misinterpreted or misrepresented story. I don't think it would be an overstatement if I were to say that I have heard this story used wrongly as much as any other passage in the Bible. I have probably heard this story used wrongly, presented wrongly, as much as any other passage in Scripture. Let me mention some specifics. Many people try to use this story to say that Jesus glosses over or winks at sin. Jesus did not feel that sin was that big of a deal. It was not that big of a deal to Jesus. It should not be that big of a deal to us. Beloved, nothing could be further from the truth. Matthew 4.17 tells us that from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Luke 13, 3, he said, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all perish. The heart of Jesus' teaching was repentance. The foundation of his ministry was calling people to repentance. In fact, in his own words, he summarized his mission like this. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Matthew 9, 13. Now, if Jesus' mission was to call people to repentance, which he said it was, then it wouldn't make much sense to try to use John 8 to say that he glossed over sin or winked at sin or that it was no big deal what this woman had done or was doing and he really wasn't concerned about her repenting. That would be a terrible abuse and misuse of this passage running totally contrary to what Jesus said his mission and his ministry was. Still others try to use this story in John 8 to say that we never have the right to confront anyone or say anything to anyone about his or her sin. And usually these same people who twist John 8 to try to support that We'll quote Matthew 7, 1, which says, Judge not that you be not judged. But if the story here in John 8 is supposed to teach us that we are never to address anyone about sin, 
then why in the world did Jesus tell us in Matthew 18, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone? And what do you do with Galatians 6.1, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 Timothy 5, and all the other passages that tell us that there are times when it is appropriate or necessary to address sin in someone else's life. Still others use this story here in John 8 to say that Jesus excused sexual immorality. That's not true either, as we'll see in a few moments when we work our way through the passage. Jesus knew the law of God, as revealed in the Old Testament, condemned fornication and adultery, and Jesus never, throughout his ministry, never sought to lower that standard or change God's standards. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, in a sense, raised the standard when he said that even looking on a woman with lust was committing adultery in the heart. Beloved, throughout Jesus' ministry, throughout his teaching ministry, he never contradicted the law of God as revealed in Hebrew Scripture. He never lowered the standard of God. He knew that one of the Ten ten Commandments was, you shall not commit adultery. He knew that Leviticus 20.10 prescribed the death penalty for those who committed adultery. In fact, you could say that he was the one who revealed that statement to Moses to have it put in Scripture. In light of these statements from Hebrew Scripture, look at what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 5. Go back to the left to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. In verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think, Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the person who would dare teach others that it's okay to break the law of God or disobey the law of God will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So again, I want to emphasize, Jesus was not contradicting the law of God or lowering the standard of God in John 8 when he dealt with the woman taken in adultery. God's standard concerning sexual immorality is the same today as it has always been, whether we're talking about Old Testament times, New Testament times, or 21st century. Let me show you some passages that support that. Turn over to the right, past John past Acts Romans to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. The Apostle Paul said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And here's the list. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, 
in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says people whose lives are characterized by this type of behavior will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the Corinthians were, used to be, characterized by such things before their salvation. Turn past 2 Corinthians, the next letter, to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. A similar list to what we just saw in 1 Corinthians, Galatians 5, 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Same statement that we saw in 1 Corinthians. Those, it's not saying those who have ever done any of these things, those whose lives are characterized by these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at the next letter, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 says, But fornication, that is the overarching, the, the, the broadest term in the New Testament, to describe sexual sin. All sexual sin falls under this category, under this umbrella. Sexual immorality and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, is is fitting for saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no sexually immoral, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. God's opinion of sexual, sexual immorality has not changed. It is the same as it has always been. Skip the next letter, Philippians, and go to Colossians chapter 3. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Therefore, put to death... Your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Again, Scripture could not be any clearer. Those who live this way, who practice these things, those whose lives are characterized by these things, will face the wrath of God. And in fact... Look at the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which has a lot to say about the wrath of God, the future wrath of God, the eternal wrath of God. Revelation 21, verse 8, says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Again, right at the end of his word, God makes it clear his attitude toward those who live this way. And then one verse in Hebrews 13 sums this up well. Go back to the left just a little bit to Hebrews, just before the book of James. Hebrews chapter 13 Verse 4 says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed is undefiled. 
but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. There's nothing defiling that takes place between a husband and wife in the marriage bed, but because that is so important to God, so precious to God, those who mess it up, those who distort it, pervert it with fornication or adultery, God will judge. So the point I'm trying to emphasize here is that John chapter 8 cannot rightly be used to support the idea that Jesus excused sexual immorality, that it was no big deal to him. It was just, you know, an irrelevant, insignificant issue. God's standards haven't changed even if the standards of our society have. A while back, I had a couple come to me who wanted me to officiate their marriage. They wanted me to marry them. Both of them claimed to be believers. After talking with them for a little while, I found out that they were living together. So I tried to gently address the issue and tried to get them to repent of their wrong and separate until they were married, which they refused to do. But one of the interesting things that came out of the conversation was that the man told me that it was okay for them to be living together because God had led them together. So I asked him, which God? What God? Not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible hasn't changed his standards or his opinion. I went on to explain to him that the only way you can try to rationalize your wrong behavior is to redefine the God of the Bible into your own terms, which is nothing less than idolatry. So, beloved, mark it well. God has not changed his view of sexual sin. So don't let anyone misuse the story in John 8 to try to tell you otherwise. In fact, if you'll read the story closely, which we're going to do, you'll notice that at the end of the incident, Jesus told the woman, go and sin no more. That's the part of the story that most people want to ignore. So the purpose of the story in John 8 is not to show that Jesus was easy on sin, or that we never have a right to address sin, or that Jesus was lowering God's standard concerning sexual immorality. The purpose of the story is to show the majesty of Jesus in the midst of hatred, hypocrisy, scheming, and plotting. So let's go back to John chapter 8 to consider this story, this incident together. Ever since chapter 5 of John's gospel, the Jews have been trying to murder Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 18 tells us that. But up until this point, they haven't been able to murder him because God in his sovereignty has not permitted it to happen. Chapter 7 tells us that. Look at chapter 7, verse 30. Chapter 7, verse 30 says, Therefore they sought to take him... But no one laid a hand on him. Why? Well, if they wanted to get him, if they wanted to capture him and kill him, why don't they just do it? Because his hour had not yet come. That's why God did not permit it. Verse 44, same chapter. Now some of them wanted to take him. Well, take him. He's right there. Arrest him. Drag him off. But no one laid hands on him. This statement is made more than once in John's gospel. They wanted to kill him, but they couldn't get it done. Since they couldn't kill Jesus outright, they decided to come up with a plan to have him killed, either by an angry mob of Jewish people 
or by the Roman government. And beloved, that is exactly what is behind the incident in chapter 8. The story is simply a black background to display the majesty of Jesus in full radiance. With that in mind, let's look at this text together. We'll pick it up in verse 53 of chapter 7. It says, And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. It's interesting that John adds this little detail for us. What he seems to be hinting at was what Jesus himself said in Matthew 8.20 when he said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. All the people in this multitude went to their own house, but Jesus went to spend the night on the Mount of Olives. Now it's possible that he spent the night with his good friends, Lazarus, Mary and Martha over in Bethany, which is on the backside of the Mount of Olives, or it's possible that he just slept out somewhere on the Mount of Olives. Verse 2 tells us, Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. This was the normal rabbinical tradition. A rabbi would enter the temple, and he would sit down to indicate that he was about to teach. Now, I understand that in our culture we do it the opposite way. When someone is going to speak or teach, he stands up. But in that culture they would sit down. That would signify or indicate that someone was about to begin teaching. Verse 3 says, Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. My first question is, and I'm sure it's yours, where's the man? I mean, if this woman was caught in the very act of adultery, then there had to be a man involved. It doesn't take much intelligence to figure out that one. Why didn't they bring the man to Jesus? After all, Leviticus 20.10 specifies that in adultery, both the man and the woman are to be put to death. And remember, when Jesus was ministering, the law of God, the old covenant, was still in place. He had not instituted or inaugurated the new covenant. So Leviticus 20.10 applied. Both man and woman are to be put to death. Deuteronomy 22.22-24 says the same thing. Both man and woman are to be put to death. In fact, in the Mishnah, which was the Jewish codified law, it says that a woman who commits adultery is to be stoned, But a man who commits adultery is to be strangled, and even the method of strangulation is described. Here's the quote from the Mishnah. Quote, The man is to be enclosed in dung up to his knees, and a soft towel set within a rough towel is to be placed around his neck in order that no mark be made, for the punishment is God's punishment. The one man draws in one direction and another in the other direction until he be dead, end quote. Now, let me guarantee you that the scribes and the Pharisees would have known these things. This was their business. This was their life. They would have known this. They would have known what Leviticus says, what Deuteronomy says, what the Mishnah says. But the fact that they didn't bring the man is an indication that something in their story doesn't fit. Something does not add up. Verse 5, they say, Now Moses, in the law, 
commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Now understand, this is quite a, quite a brilliant setup these men have put in place. They knew their culture. They knew their society. The crowd revered Moses because God used Moses as the vessel through which his holy law was given. So if at this point in the incident, Jesus contradicts the law, the law of Moses, the law of God, then he will fall into disfavor with the people, maybe even to the point of being stoned, which was what the Pharisees were hoping. They were hoping that Jesus would say something that would contradict the law of God, the law of Moses, and put him in disrepute with the multitude around. But here's the other dilemma Jesus is facing. If Jesus permits the stoning, then he would get in trouble with the Romans because they forbade the Jews to kill anyone. They took away the right of capital punishment from the Jewish people when they conquered them. Only the Romans could put people to death, and they didn't use stoning. They used crucifixion. Now, the Pharisees knew all of this. This is quite a a brilliant strategy they've come up with. They knew all of this. That's why they set the whole thing up. They want Jesus dead. doesn't matter to them if he's killed by the, the Jewish population or by the Romans. They want Jesus dead. To them, it didn't matter how he was killed, just as long as he was no longer around to be a burr under their saddle. So they really put him on the spot. In fact, the you in this verse is emphatic. They said, Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned. But what do you, what do you say about this, teacher? What are you going to say? You can just see their masked hatred as they ask the question. Verse 6, John tells us, This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. It's obvious from the tone of this entire passage that the scribes and Pharisees set up this whole thing. I mean, think about it. How else would they just happen to come across two people in the act of adultery? This was a trap deliberately set. And since they were behind it, since they set up the whole thing, think about it. That makes them guilty of proliferating adultery. They're They're actually advancing causing adultery. And Jesus isn't about to let them get away with their hypocrisy. But at first, it seems that way as he stoops down and begins writing in the sand. No one can be certain what Jesus was writing here. Many suggestions have been made down through the years. One suggestion is that he may have been writing out their names with a list of their sins. In fact, one or two of the Greek manuscripts say that he wrote in the dust, quote, the sins of each one of them. So that's one possibility. Another suggestion is that Jesus may have been writing out the details of their arrangement to propagate this adulterous act, writing out how they set it up and how they arranged everything. Some have suggested that Jesus wrote what Paul would later write in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Still another suggestion is that Jesus was writing out the applicable passages from the law of God in the Pentateuch. Who knows? But whatever he wrote... It had a powerful impact. Verse 7 tells us, So when they continued asking him, you see, they're pressing him. They're trying to get him in trouble. 
He raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. This is a masterful reply. Deuteronomy 17.7 states that the witnesses of a grievous sin were to be the ones to cast the first stone. So Jesus is basically saying, okay, go ahead, follow the law of God, stone her, and the one who is without sin, you be the one to cast the first stone. So rather than encouraging disobedience to the law, Jesus actually lines up with the law of God, and they were the ones who were disobeying the law of God because they hadn't brought both the man and the woman. And they were not in line with the law in their attitudes because in Exodus 23.1, the law said that you were not to join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. This was the same principle Jesus reiterated in his Sermon on the Mount when he said that we better make sure we first remove the sin from our own lives before we seek to remove the speck from our brother's eye. So they were violating the law of God at least on two accounts. Jesus lined up with the law of God by agreeing that this woman could be stoned. But he pointed out the fact that these hypocrites were in no position to be carrying out any kind of judgment on this woman. Again, let me emphasize that Jesus is not saying here that it's never right to address sin or confront sin, which is the way many people try to use this passage. Such a view would contradict many of the things Jesus himself taught, as well as many other passages of Scripture. As an illustration of this, I'll never forget when I saw a televangelist, TV evangelist, prosperity preacher, being interviewed on TV about his sin that had just come out in the open, as it often does. And he misused this verse by saying in the interview, Well, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. I almost lost my dinner on the spot. Beloved, this statement by Jesus is not a blanket statement that forbids confrontation of sin. Jesus was simply pointing out that these hypocrites had, had no right, were in no position to be the ones to judge this woman's actions. It's clearly what Jesus is saying. John Calvin put it this way, quote, This is not an absolute and simple prohibition in which Christ forbids sinners to do their duty in correcting the sins of others. But by this word, he only reproves hypocrites who gently flatter themselves in their own vices, but are excessively severe and even savage judges of others. None, then, must let his own sins stop him from correcting the sins of others and even punishing them when necessary, so long as he hates both in himself and in others what is to be condemned. More, every man should begin by interrogating his own conscience and be both witnesses and judge against himself before he comes to others. In this way, we shall wage war on sins without hating men, end quote. That says it well, and it is consistent with what Jesus taught throughout his ministry. Jesus was the one who taught us to address sin when necessary, but not when we are refusing to deal with sin in our own lives. That is why he blasts these Pharisees. In verse 8, we are told, And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. If Jesus had been writing a list of the sins in the lives of those present, which is one of the suggestions, and it's only 
a guess. If that's the case, however, then the implication of this verse is that he wrote their names in order from the oldest to the youngest, which was a subtle way to display his omniscience. And his omniscience shot conviction into the hearts of these men standing around. The scribes and Pharisees were convicted, but notice that they didn't respond properly. They walked away from Jesus in anger rather than falling on their knees in repentance and surrender to him. That's the way it is with conviction. Conviction drives a person to repent and fall on his knees before Jesus or it drives him away from Jesus in anger. That's why there are many people who hate to be in church on Sunday. The conviction is unbearable. It just angers them. On the other hand, there are those whose consciences are seared beyond the point of feeling any conviction. And that's even more scary than those who respond in anger. In this case, the crowd responded in anger as they walked away from the oldest to the youngest. Verse 10 tells us, When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Well, the answer to that question is yes and no. The Pharisees had already condemned her in the sense that they found her guilty, declared her guilty. But what Jesus is asking is, has anyone carried out judgment on you? Has no one carried out the judgment? Has no one begin, begun to throw stones to stone you? The way Jesus addresses this woman is beautiful. It's just marvelous. He addresses her with the same title he used to address his mother Mary back in John 2. It's a term of respect and honor. Even as Jesus is about to confront this woman and call her to repentance, he does so graciously. Verse 11, she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Please notice Jesus' wording here. This, of all the verses in this text, must be noted carefully. Jesus does not offer forgiveness to this woman. Forgiveness can only be granted on the basis of faith and repentance, but there is no indication of either in this woman's life at this point. So Jesus doesn't grant forgiveness to this woman. Whenever Jesus offered forgiveness during his earthly ministry, you can track it yourselves, read through the Gospels. He specifically stated it by using the word forgive. Your sins are forgiven. But he doesn't, he doesn't use that word here. And Jesus was never sloppy with his wording of anything. He doesn't grant this woman forgiveness. He only tells her that he will not condemn her for her sin. In other words, he tells her that he will not carry out the judgment of stoning that he could have carried out. I mean, think about it, beloved. Jesus could have rightly stoned this woman to death. It was in the law of God. But he said, I am not going to condemn you. I'm not going to carry out this judgment on you. But understand, Jesus is not excusing the sin. He's not condoning the sin. He's actually calling for repentance. He is calling for righteousness. That's why he says, go and sin no more. Or as one translation puts it, go now and leave your life of sin. 
Leave your life of sin. Repent of it. Turn from it. Back in chapter 3, verse 17, it says, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus' purpose in his first coming was not to condemn for sin, but to deliver from sin. Jesus could have come in his first coming and carried out the condemning judgment of God, and rightly so. But that wasn't the plan. His plan was to come the first time to to deliver from sin, and then the second time to condemn for sin. When he comes back the second time, he will condemn at that point. He will carry out judgment, but not during this first coming. So he calls this woman to repentance. He calls her to righteousness. But unfortunately, beloved, that's the part of the story that most people leave out. It's the part of the story that most people ignore. They ignore this part of the story, and as a result, they completely misread and misunderstand and misinterpret what's going on here. Furthermore, if the motive isn't pure, sometimes it could be accidental. They just miss this part of the story. But sadly, some people ignore this part of the story because they don't want to repent of their sin. They don't want to turn to Jesus for righteousness. They want to believe that Jesus doesn't care about sin, that he winks at sin, that sin is no big deal to him, that he doesn't call people to repentance, that he doesn't demand righteousness. That's what some people want to believe so they can live the way they live. When conviction strikes, many people do what the Pharisees did and they walk away from Jesus rather than yielding to him. What about you? Where are you at this morning? Are, are you on your knees before the Lord or are you walking away from Him in anger? If you're at the point of decision in your life, I urge you to give in to the Lord Jesus. In your heart of hearts, tell Him you want forgiveness. You want to repent. You want His salvation. That you want to give Him your life. And I promise you that He will hear you. Let's bow together as we close. As we bow together in closing this morning, just reflect for a moment or two on the, the, the majesty of the Lord Jesus in this incredible situation. Really, in, in such a, a bind because of the setup. And yet, notice how he masterfully handled the situation, condemning the hypocrites who were seeking to trap him calling this woman to repentance and to righteousness. All the while, all the while, lining up with the Word of God, but doing so in such a masterful way. It's a a powerful picture of our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus. And the story teaches us, when rightly interpreted, so many things about our Lord. But one of them, right here at the end, that is abundantly clear, is that Jesus calls us to forsake sin, to follow him. Jesus said to this woman, go and sin no more. Go and leave your life of sin. Follow me. Follow righteousness. And it's the same call that Jesus gives to us today. 
here in our day to forsake sin, repent of sin, to receive his forgiveness, to pursue righteousness and pursue him. Is that the way you're living life? If you're not, then surrender. Yield to the Lord Jesus today. Yield to him to follow him in righteousness. Father, we are so grateful for our precious Savior. What a, what a, a wonderful, wonderful snapshot of his majesty in the midst of such hatred of him, so much hatred in trying to murder him any way it could get, get accomplished and to see his wisdom, to see his splendor, to see his, his love, his compassion, to see his desire to call people to salvation, repentance, righteousness. It all is such a, a marvelous portrait. May we make sure that we understand it properly, that we appreciate it well, and that we use this passage of Scripture whenever we do use it in the right way, not misrepresenting, not distorting, not contradicting your word elsewhere. And above all, Father, I pray for anyone here in our midst who is living a life of sin and needs to forsake it, to turn to Jesus Christ. May your Holy Spirit draw that man or woman to surrender to Jesus today, in whose name we pray. Amen.